Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. speaking today with Maya. I'm so glad we finally connected. We've had a little bit of a crazy up and down schedule the last few weeks, but we finally made it. We've been chatting back and forth on Twitter. So thanks for dropping into MindShift Podcast. Thank you, Dr. Clint. Thank you for having me on on MindShift. Just call me Clint. That's fine. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) It's a a piece of paper that doesn't, you know, mean a whole lot anymore these days. Well, I don't know. I have a doctorate myself. I don't also like to be called doctor, but it is you did the hard work for it. We did. Yeah, we did. We put in the work. We got the we got the piece of paper. I'm not currently using it for my sort of professional academic career, but I, I put my practical skills to use, my academic skills for doing this podcast and writing. So it's not a complete waste, I would say. What was your doctorate in, by the way, if I might ask? I did a doctorate in actually preaching, believe it or not. It was homiletics and Old Testament studies. So I did a study on the book of Ezekiel, and tried to apply it to preaching, which is bizarre. But I figured there was nobody that was going to do that, which is true. I've never seen a dissertation on the book of Ezekiel and preaching before or since. Yeah, usually they try to, other students might try to write on the more common books like Daniel or, that's or right. Revelation, right? That's why I picked Ezekiel because it's such a bizarre, strange book. And I figured if I can make this work, I should be able to you know, have a unique contribution to to academics. The funny thing was, though, when I got all done with it, nobody wanted to publish it as a sort of a resource because it was too obscure you know, for that very reason. So I might have I might have gone too obscure in that sense. Yeah, Ezekiel was one of the hardest books that I it remember really reading. I couldn't it's understand it. Very strange. That's why I spent so many years studying the book of Ezekiel and then uh, that kind of led to my deconstruction, though, in a weird way, because the version of God in Ezekiel is pretty bizarre. So, you know, I had to question a lot of my own sort of received understandings from my fundamentalist background. But anyway, we're not here to talk about me. I mean, I'm interested in hearing your story. What's your story? Because you grew up, whereabouts did you grow up? And you've had a really fascinating story, and I'm sure we'll get around to Christian nationalism and missions and all the rest of it. Oh, yes. So... I was uh, born in Lynchburg, Virginia, to two Indian immigrant parents. Um, Mary Falwell's hometown. Exactly. That's right. My father is a Hindu and my mother is a Christian. The reason, though, they moved to Lynchburg was because my dad was working for GE and they had an office there, oddly Mm -hmm. enough, in the evangelical homeland. Absolutely. Fundamentalist, really. Yeah, right, right. That's right. Although Liberty University came like 11 years after I was born and after Mm -hmm. we had left. Right. So you got out before all that started blowing up. At that time, Falwell just must have had his Thomas Road Baptist Church there then. Yes. That was all. And maybe the school. He had Lynchburg Christian Academy too, I think, just a school, but not certainly not Liberty University. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So you grew up in Lynchburg of all places. You know, actually, my family moved a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. So I spent actually my first four years in Lynchburg. And I do remember attending a Christian preschool called Heritage. I don't know if it's uh, affiliated with uh, Falwell's church and Mm -hmm. his school. I have one brother who was born three years after me. The early years growing up, I don't remember uh, religion being a big part of our lives for either religion. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, rather difficult, though. My mother, unfortunately, she was, you know, very abusive towards my brother and I. My Some of my earliest memories are of her getting angry and impatient towards me as a toddler. And, you know, toddlers are bound to make mistakes, of course. Of course. You know, it really, it really continued throughout life. So at mm-hmm. four years old, I actually moved to Cary, North Carolina, and that's where I attended kindergarten and I stayed there till first grade. And, you know, once again, we didn't find religion had no you know, prominence in our house. Well, was there any I, conflict between your mom and dad? I mean, you're talking completely two different faiths. Was that ever an issue between the two of them? Not at first. They had conflicts over other things. 
One major conflict did come up while we were in, in North Carolina. My dad wanted to move back to India. He wanted to work for his father who had started a, like a consulting company. He was an engineer by background and so was my dad. And he started uh, in the 80s consulting for oil companies in the Middle East. So he started that and my father wanted to start a telecoms branch of that same company. Mm -hmm. There was much conflict around the time, but it, we did eventually move there and I was seven. That was my first time outside the country, actually. And it's a big I, switch. Yeah, from, big yeah, switch. Yeah, South Carolina back to India. North Carolina. Not or South. North Carolina, right. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was a switch. I, I detect your uh, southern accent. You from around there? No, <laughs> no. I'm actually from Seattle, Washington. I'm about oh. as far from the south as you can get <laughs> from the oh. northwest. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I could have sworn you were from the South. <laughs> no, I'm not from the South. Never, never <laughs> been to North or South Carolina. <laughs> Carolina was certainly beautiful from what I remember. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I love, I remember going to Chapel Hill. It's a nice, cool town. Very laid back. The big UNC campus is there. Asheville's also very nice too, where the Vanderbilt Castle is. Yeah, it's a beautiful country. <laughs> yep. But then Never you moved to India. Whereabouts did you go in India then? I moved to the city. It's now called Chennai, but back then it was known as Madras. Mm -hmm. Madras was actually where uh, my, my dad grew up from age five onwards. And my mother, she had moved there when she was a teenager. Both sides of the, fam of the family were there at the time. But it was my first time out of in, in a new country at such a young age. It was quite, uh, quite a, a shock, actually. Mm, culture, culture shock. shock. Oh, definitely. Huge. Yes. Yes. For one thing, I remember at seven being struck by, you know, how different it looked. 20 years ago, there was more poverty over there. There was a lot of traffic. It wasn't quite as uh, clean. It has changed. I can tell you that. But back then, it looked like night and day compared to living in America. I can imagine. So you moved to Madras at the time. It's now changed names, isn't it? But why did you end up moving there? So your dad was going there for work. He was trying to start a business with your with his family. Yes, that's why. Mm -hmm. My mother, unfortunately, did not want to move back, but we did. And that's when I also started to notice that there were conflicts regarding uh, religion. When we moved back, my paternal grandmother, she started to introduce my brother and I to Hindu style worship. So with, just to give you an overview of what it might consist of, it consists of doing a, what's called a puja, you know, giving offerings, offering flowers, saying uh, mantras uh, and shlokas in Sanskrit. There's regular puja, but then there's also special ones for festivals for multiple deities. And these offerings are done to what Christians mistakenly call idols. But I think the best uh, way to describe them is like, physical representations of the, of the deity. Mm -hmm. you know, similar to how there might be a cross up on the, in the church, up mm -hmm. at the pulpit. Or one of the saints, maybe, something like that, a statue yes. of a saint. Yes, which is why even some strict Christian denominations don't want any, even a cross up there. It's seen as idolatrous. Mm -hmm. And that's when my mother started to have terrible conflicts over that. And when she found out that um, we had done uh, puja for a special ceremony, a special festival, it was uh, for the deity Ganesha, she was livid. She was absolutely livid. Mm, you were not happy at all. Nope, she was Did not. she consider that you and your brother were raised Christian in that sense? Or was well, she upset uh, because you were supposedly leaving the, the, her true faith? Well, that's the thing. We weren't really, we weren't really raised in a church from, I wasn't raised in a church from age, from birth to at that time seven. So it was really puzzling why she would react that way. But kind of knowing the psychology of many Christians today, I, I can understand where that, where that came from. Mm -hmm. so and, where was it coming from? Now, now that you're looking back at it as an adult, you can say, okay, I think I, I understand why she was upset. Even though, as you say, strangely, you weren't really raised in a religious context. Why should she be so upset? It'd be one thing if you were raised in church. Right. I think over there in the U.S., well, it's, it's majority Christian, so which she felt less out of place over there. She was a Christian despite being non-white. Mm -hmm. Whereas back in India, now she was surrounded by her in-laws and my father's extended family and back in society, which is majority Hindu. 
Never mind that she grew up in it all her life. So I still don't quite understand. But I still don't quite understand why many Indian Christians might feel out of place, if, especially if they grew up there. Sure. But I think it also comes from this... Many are raised in the church, ingrained with a persecution complex. Maybe that's something you, maybe you understand that. Mm -hmm. Certainly, yeah. American Christianity, they have that narrative that they're, they've been persecuted historically and are still being persecuted. So yes, it, it's, I can understand that as an American evangelical or an ex-American evangelical. I've talked to a few Indian ex-Christians and they too were sort of brought up with that too. So I mm. think in Indian churches, this might be espoused. Right, this. even more. So did things come to a head then with your mom over this issue? It did. And from then on, she did not allow us to take part in any Hindu style of worship. We were still allowed to go to my grandparents' house for a couple of years. Then that stopped too. For the re religious reasons? And many others. Mm -hmm. There was just one of many that contributed to marital discord and I think it was just you know, her having the lack of power and coming right back to India when before she had finally moved out, she had finally made it to America, and she was not happy to come right back to where she started from. So the, the, a, a layers of conflict, really, it sounds like, isn't it? Oh, goodness, yes, yes. It wasn't just the well, one thing about religion. She, she obviously didn't want to move back to India. No, she did not. It was just one factor. Mm -hmm. It grew to be a bigger factor later. While we were in India, I have some good memories, but a lot of bad ones, mainly related to the dis disintegration of my parents' marriage and also her increasingly abusive behavior towards both my brother and I. Her frustration with her lot in life led her to take out a lot of that anger against us. Age seven is about the age when concrete memories are formed, so that's probably why I remember that stands out to me a lot. Quite vivid memories of that period, huh? Not And not pleasant ones either, for the most part, sounds like. The physical abuse ramped up and the verbal abuse and the mental abuse that ramped up. Mm. And it was, it, it got so bad. I even told my, my paternal grandmother, who then told my grandfather, who then relayed this to my dad who was often away more on business because he was he would go to the middle east he would go to eastern europe that had started to open up in an attempt to yeah grow <clears> the <throat> business yeah to grow the business right so he was gone leaving your mom to basically raise you and your brother so yeah that's not a good environment either no and he knew that she could have a horrible temper and could be harsh towards us but i don't know if Maybe he was just too busy to think about what, what was really happening mm -hmm. until... The extent to which he was actually abusive, huh? Yes. To this day, he tells me he really didn't know the full extent of it. And mm. it took a letter from my grandfather to him to open his eyes. And my grandfather said, you'd be better off divorcing her and letting her go back to America. Somehow my mom found out about it. She ended up breaking into my dad's office like at five o'clock in the morning. Well, she took his keys, wasn't technically a break-in. And she found that letter. And after she found out, then, of course, there was a confrontation. She really came down hard on me because the only reason they knew about the abuse is because it came from me. Mm, yeah, so she traced it back full circle and said, you ratted me out, basically. The whole thing had gone from you to your grandmother to your grandfather back to dad. She's finding out about it. Yeah, so it sounds like a very dysfunctional environment for sure, to put it mildly. Yeah. Yes, yes. So eventually your parents get divorced? Is that, that sounds like where this thing is heading. That took a long time to get there. Really? It did. It Before took many that, years to, for them to actually come to that and make that decision of getting divorced? Yes, because a lot more happened in between mm -hmm. this at this point and you know, when they finally got divorced. Before, there was abuse at home, but I felt, I felt like I wasn't as... I wasn't as unhappy, not until that breaking point. Mm -hmm. I was eight or nine. After that, she really, something changed in me. Maybe she did break me. And from then on, I did everything that she wanted me to. I, I never so much as rebelled from that time. You became time. very compliant. Maybe it was just an effort to keep the peace, if nothing else. Yeah. If you're, I, if you're not doing anything wrong, then she's not going to abuse me or hit me or whatever. I would say so. 
it was to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. And I remained like that for a very long time. So this was 1998 when this happened. A year later, we moved back, first back to North Carolina, and then eventually we moved to California in 2000. In 2000, my dad got a very well-paying job at Cisco Systems, and we moved to um, San Jose, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's well known mm-hmm. for being a, a tech hub, even yeah, back right then. Right near Silicon Valley and all that. That is Silicon Valley. Yeah, I was going to say that's right in there, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. and always and has been for a very long time. Yeah, but it was only in 2001 when I noticed she was getting deeper into religion. At first, she started attending like this generic mega church on Sunday. One time she did drag my brother and I to an Easter service. Then eventually she found the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. She came across a program, a TV program by a ministry called Amazing Facts. If you ever get the chance to look into them, you'll see that they purport themselves to be the arbiters of end times prophecy. They keep, mm-hmm. they hold regular video programs and, and se- seminars on yeah, conferences. Yeah. I've been to some of those back when I was an evangelical because I was interested in end times prophecy and the Seventh-day Adventists, like you said, they are big on eschatology, end times prophecy. It's a big part of their sort of theological system, isn't it? So your mom gets sucked into SDA then. She did. Yes. Wow. I think it makes sense why she might have done so. The Seventh-day Adventists, particularly ministries like Amazing Facts, they offer easy answers as to why events occur. You know, 2000, we saw the Y2K. Mm -hmm. Then a year later, I actually don't remember much about Y2K per se, but 9-11 certainly had more of an impact. And I think it had a lot of impact on people. They might have found themselves wondering, is this the end of the you know, the end of the world. I'm sure many denominations were primed with this class of, clash of civilizations narrative. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's Did led to a lot of that? Islamophobia and everything else, hasn't it? Yeah. Did you hear a lot of that in your church? Uh, not so much the Islamophobia then, but I can, I've seen a lot of it since then, for sure. On the Christian right it is a huge narrative. Yeah. And I think they gravitated towards, you know, denominations like the Seventh-day Adventists Mm -hmm. for easy answers and perhaps feeling like the end is near, they need to repent and accept Jesus as their savior and whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if it's close, if it's right around the corner. Exactly, yeah. You better get right with God while there's still time. Yes, and I think that's where my mother was at. Mm -hmm. She first started going to Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, though when we moved in 2003 to another city, Davis, California. So that's like three hours away from the Bay Area because in the Bay Area, we couldn't afford a house. Yeah, I was going to say, it's so expensive, isn't it? Yeah. My dad still continued to work at Cisco, which is located in San Jose and would only come back for the weekends. We had to do it. But Mm. I think being apart from him, having more time, I don't mind the devil's workshop, they say, and that's when she (laughs) started to get serious about it. She found a local church in Davis. She first started going alone. Then eventually she started bringing my brother and I along. We did that for about a a year. And then in 2004, she made the decision she wanted to become a baptized member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And she wanted my brother and I to do it. So that feeling of, that urgent feeling of getting right with God because the end of the world is coming around. She projected that onto my brother and I. And she coerced us into getting baptized. You know, I remember this scene. I remember it clearly. Mm-hmm. Her mother, my maternal grandmother, was visiting at the time. And I remember we sat there on a Friday afternoon. We were visiting with the pastor of the church who came to talk to my brother and I, and also my dad, who never ever came with us to church and had no intention of converting whatsoever, which she was sitting right there as the pastor and I were talking to my brother and I. And I remember him saying, it's you that has to be the one to make this decision. Because in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and I think in many other denominations, they, they don't do infant baptism. They instead let the child make the decision when they reach the age of accountability 
For some churches, it might be from age seven onwards. For the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, it seemed more like age 13 onwards. Mm -hmm. And my brother and I were now teenagers. He was 13 and I was 16. So we were at that age where they said we'd be able to make that decision for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Reach the age of accountability in their view. Yes. I can tell you, though, it, it wasn't. It was definitely not our decision. So you were coerced, you would say now? Well, you didn't buy the whole end times stuff that he was selling as well as your mom? At first, um, you know, thinking, remembering, you know, that year before I officially got baptized, I remember, you know, trying to take it seriously and and being concerned about, you know, the end times, looking for signs that it is imminent based on what they would, you know, tell us on their interpretations of Daniel and Revelation. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember, you know, feeling the sense of urgency. I was more occupied with my work, my schoolwork and other things, regular stuff that many high schoolers have to deal with. Yeah, you get typical stuff going on in your life. Yes. So you're going through the typical sort of teenage stuff. Now you've got this other burden being placed on you by your mom. And now this pastor of all this end times. And I think there is a seduction to it, isn't there? Because you start thinking, well, wait a minute, what if it is true? How's the world going to end? How, you know, this actually could be happening. Maybe I better get right with God while there is still that chance. Yeah. 9-11 was still fresh. Then we Mm -hmm. were in Iraq and, you know, the insurgency was ramping up. The events in the Middle East, of course, were on my mind. And also with the Seventh-day Adventists, they don't really care about the stuff in the Middle East. They're more so focused on the doings of the Vatican. They think the Vatican is the, you know, is the beast of Revelation, the whore of Babylon. And any move that the Vatican makes that is perceived as, you know, increasing its power or, you know, reconciling with other religions and other Christian denominations is seen as a move to establish themselves as a, as a one world government power, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That's so different from what you might hear, uh, like in your Left Behind books or any other end time series, mm-hmm. which is more so focused on the Middle East. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember that when the first Gulf War was going on, I was still an evangelical then, and there were books coming out in rapid succession about, is this the end times? Is this the war in the Middle East? Is this Armageddon? Or is this the precursor to Armageddon? It was huge around that same time period. Yeah. No churches doubt. were actually getting filled up with people that were desperate to find out those answers. I can remember that too. We had people actually come into our church in Portland when I was an elder and a pastor there who just kind of wandered in off the streets and they were like, is this the end time stuff coming on? I know something about it. It's in the Bible, isn't it? <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. When we come back from the break, we're going to get more into this amazing story of survival by Maya, not just of her mother, which is unbelievable in itself, but toxic religion. And we're also going to talk about toxic missions work as she sees it in India happening right now today. And it's been going on for a very long time. We're going to conclude the episode by looking at that and some of the work that she's doing as an activist now as well. So hang around for a minute, and we'll be right back with the second half of this conversation with Maya Ram. I just wanted to mention what is coming up in the next few episodes here on Mindshift Podcast. I've got so many things in the pipeline. It's unbelievable. That's the way it goes sometimes. First of all, I just had a conversation with Jared Yates Sexton. Of course, he's the co-host of the Muckrake Podcast. We had a discussion the other week about his book, American Rule. That was absolutely amazing. That is going to be coming out next as a bonus episode. And then, just this week, looking at this calendar, a bunch of people queued up to talk to. First of all, I'm going to be talking to Audrey Claire Farley. She wrote an article just the other day on Dr. James Dobson and eugenics, an absolutely fascinating piece. I've been meaning to do an episode on James Dobson. I read her article and I thought, I've got to talk to Audrey Then I've got Rachel Bernstein of the Indoctrination Podcast. We're going to do one episode on her show, and then she's going to have one on mine. We're going to figure that out when we talk this week. Then I've got Matthew of the Still Unbelievable Podcast. I'm actually going to be on their show coming up on Friday. Then on Saturday, I'm talking to Daniel Phelps, 
who is a survivor of a cult out of Kansas City. Then I'm going to be on the Left at the Valley podcast on Sunday. Just amazing stuff. This is the way it works. I've got a recording scheduled from Wednesday every night this week all the way through to Sunday. And of course, speaking of recordings, we just had our MindShift Zoom call on the 23rd of May. We had Jurette and Lisa drop in of the igotout.org, an absolutely fascinating conversation with those two wonderful women. Both of them are survivors coming out of a new age, sort of a psychology cult background, two completely different groups. We had an amazing discussion with Jurette and Lisa, and at some point, I'll put that up on the MindShift Podcast Facebook page so you can have a look. This is a benefit, though, that you get for being a supporter of this show. You get access to these amazing Zoom calls that we do every month. And in fact, next month on the 27th, I'm super excited to announce that we're going to have Emily Elizabeth Anderson back. We just did an episode the other day on the Bill Gothard cult, Josh Duggar, IBLP. So we're going to be talking about that. I've got a number of people in our closed Facebook group that are Gothard cult survivors like me. So I'm really looking forward to having Emily come back next month as a guest on our Zoom call. So I wanted to say thank you too to Diana Riglett as well as Jane Krause Ford. These are the two most recent Patreon supporters of the show. So a huge thanks. Uh, I'll be sending them out as soon as I get their addresses. Some nice little thank you gifts in the case of Jane. She's a $5 a month supporter. I'll be sending a really cool little gift from North Wales. And in Diana's case, since she's a $10 a month supporter, I will send her out a MindShift Podcast t-shirt. So these are some of the benefits you get for being a supporter of the show. But I think the most important thing is to be a part of the community. You need that support, especially if you're leaving religion behind and you need community. We had it in the church. We had it in religion. Where do you get it now if you've walked away from all that? This is a good place to start our closed Facebook group, and we also have closed patrons-only Zoom calls once a month as well. So if that sounds good to you, if you want to be a part of our growing community, support the show on Patreon and you'll have access to those benefits. All right, let's get on back into the second half of the conversation. We're going to pick up the story of where she was about to get baptized in the Seventh-day Adventist church, or is it a cult? And then, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about her work as an activist looking at worldwide missions and how that is actually what she'll call cultural genocide. What we're seeing is in order for missions to work, which a lot of it is fueled by a sort of a dominionist agenda, other religions have to go. Other people groups, they have to bow to Christianity and their culture, their religious backgrounds are getting wiped out. So we're going to end the episode hearing how she survived a toxic relationship with both her mother and religion, as well as looking at this issue of just how damaging the worldwide spread of Christian missions can actually be. But going back to my story, Mm -hmm. I was sitting there and the pastor was telling us that it was our decision to make. Then he also turned and talked to my father who point blank said to him, the only reason they're going to say yes is because their mother is sitting right there. And that he, and he voiced his opposition to us getting baptized. And I would do the same thing if this mm-hmm. was happening, if I were in his shoes. Absolutely. But to no avail. To no avail. And we did say yes. And then um, we went through with it the following Saturday. Saturday is considered the day of the true day of rest by the Seventh-day Adventists mm-hmm. versus Sunday for everybody else. That's right. They have the services on Saturday. Yes, they do. Yeah. In some extreme cases of the SDA, they believe that other um, denominations that meet on Sunday are heretics and apostates and everything. Don't, I know not all Seventh-day Adventists believe that, I think. Isn't that true? But some of the more fundamentalist ones... They think they are the only ones who have it right by worshiping on what they call the Sabbath. Yes, they do. And they believe, and they're part of their opposition to the Vatican is because they believe the Vatican, when they become a one world government power, they will impose the Sunday laws and will outlaw worship on Saturday. Okay. And, and that that would be the mark of the beast, that everybody accepting Sunday as the day of worship. Other churches might emphasize like barcodes or, or mm-hmm. microchips. I know there's a bunch of conspiracy theories circulating around oh, yeah. the COVID vaccines. I was going to say, yeah, people are saying that's the mark of the beast. Even wearing a mask is the mark of the beast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay. Well, I don't know if that's changed since I left church, but back then it was more so, you know, accepting Sunday 
which is they consider the false day of worship. Mm-hmm. That was the big one. That's well, now it's QAnon. That's another big one that's exploding in evangelical churches. So yeah, it's it's a new a new conspiracy has arisen to take you know take over evangelicalism. So did you become in the end though? Did you become sort of an avid Seventh Day Adventist, or did you just attend sort of out of the motions because your mom wanted you to attend? You know, it's funny. The day of the baptism, I woke up early in the morning. I had bought a Fleetwood Mac CD, and I was listening to that on my Walkman on the headphones, making sure that no one would burst into my room at any moment. I honestly felt like I was consuming forbidden fruit, that I wouldn't be able to do this from now on. And indeed, once I got baptized, I tried. I did my best to take it seriously. I, I felt like I had to, that in spite of this being forced on me, maybe I should make this make right with God, accept mm-hmm. Jesus as my savior. And of course, there was the addition of following the rules of the Seventh-day Adventists. With, there's not really any hard and fast rules necessarily. It really depends on you know, each church and each individual family and individual itself. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, though, with my mother, she then would forbid us from doing anything that was ungodly and no outside of the church on Saturdays from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So that included homework, which was tough for me because I had a lot of it. Mm, no homework time. on the Sabbath. Yeah. That was... That's work. It's considered work. Yes, it is. And then for a time, she even banned fiction books. Fiction? Why banning fiction? What's wrong with fiction? I guess it was uh, it's considered untrue and distractions. Uh, a frivolous pursuit. Frivolous pursuit. You're not reading the Bible. The Bible is okay to read, I assume, or, or good books on theology or whatever. Well, um, we were limited to the Bible, but also... Um, in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, they, their second book of importance is The Great Controversy by one Ellen White. Mm-hmm. Ellen G. A, White. Ellen G. White. She was an early follower of the predecessor to the Seventh-day Adventists, the Millerites, mm-hmm. which in 1844, they thought the world was going to end. Their followers sold all their possessions and waited outside, huddled around a fire for the end of the world to come. And then when it didn't happen, they called that the Great Disappointment. Hmm. But several people continued continued on and expanded from that, and Ellen White was one of them. There's also a connection with the Jehovah's Witnesses too, because they came out of the Millerites as well, I believe. Isn't that correct? There's some there's some connection with the Millerites as well, because the Jehovah's Witnesses have a big emphasis on end times prophecy. They predicted Armageddon was going to occur numerous times, and of course, they've been wrong as well. Yes, yeah. I'd have to look into that more, though. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There is definitely a connection there. Mm, okay. So you're in this context, a very controlling sort of context. Now, looking at it as an adult, would you say it sort of meets any of the markers of sort of a cult-like, controlling, high-control, undue-influence sort of environment? I'd say so. Even though I was officially baptized to it at, at age 16 rather than being born into it, it still in, exerted undue influence on my life. Hmm. I even couldn't work. I even couldn't find a job. When I was applying for jobs, I said I wouldn't be able to work Friday night or Saturday during the day. And that cost me a lot of opportunities. I can imagine. A lot of retail yeah. jobs. <laughs> you need to work <laughs> evenings, weekends. Sorry, I can't do it because of my religion, my religious yeah. beliefs. Yes. And even though I had been baptized and was doing my best to be a good Seventh-day Adventist, I had half-baked plans of wanting to run away and was saving as much of my allowance as I could to run away and get out of the house as fast Mm -hmm. as I could. And it didn't really, these feelings didn't really waver even after I became a baptized member of the Seventh-day Adventists. So it affected my, my, any way to earn any income. Can imagine. (laughs) So did you end up getting out then in the end? How long did you stick around in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Or was it one of those things, as soon as you turned 18, I'm out of here? Oh, yeah. No, it didn't happen that way. I sort of wish it did, but it didn't. Mm-hmm. Which just a few months before I turned 18, my father finally had enough. And he asked my mom for divorce. And I, I, I guess out of a f- sense of guilt and a sense of duty, I decided to I'd have to stick by my mom's side because she wouldn't have anybody else. So your brother went with your dad? That happened later, but you know, we were both with my mom first. And it was only after 
like a year or so that my brother moved out. So we, my parents got divorced. My mom eventually had to sell this house in California because she couldn't afford to pay it for it by itself. Mm-hmm. And thank, thankfully that happened because uh, the crash happened two years after the parents divorced. She would have been stuck with this house and underwater on a mortgage. Otherwise, it would have mm-hmm. been really she bad. She got out just in time too, it sounds like. Yeah. So in 2007, my mom decided to move out of California to Colorado, specifically to Colorado Springs. Mm. That's another evangelical hub. I was just going to say, you're, you're, <laughs> so you started in Lynchburg, ended up in Colorado Springs from focus on the family and the Air Force Academy and Ted Haggard's church and everything else. They're all right there. Yes, yes. And my mom chose that place not so much for the evangelical thing, though that was certainly a factor. She also wanted my brother to try and get into the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, a freshman in high school when they moved. So he would have been able to at least start that process if he was so inclined. But it, this was what she wanted for him. And she has a history of doing that, imposing her will on us, obviously. Yeah. I'm getting school. that picture. <laughs> yep. With the baptism and then yeah. her career plans for us. Right. For me... It was, I was leaning towards biology or pre-med with some half-baked fantasies of running away from home completely at age 18 to go into like a filmmaking school or to study to become a a writer or journalist. Mm -hmm. I used to be quite creative when I was younger, but after age 16, that creative impulse, well, the creative creative flame, this kind of died out. Mm, Kind of drummed it out of you, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a real shame, isn't it? That authentic self has been suppressed. That's I was going to say, going back to your point about you came into it at age 16 or so, but you already had 16 years of sort of your authentic self before that, and then you have to suppress that. And that does have an effect on us in terms of psychologically, mental health. You can't just suppress your true personality, your true authentic self, without it doing some sort of damage and perhaps lasting damage as well. I don't even know if I had an authentic self even before age 16. But yeah, you were saying you were you were so compliant for your abusive mother, even that was a, a chan- uh, an opportunity to have that suppressive environment going on. Yes, yes. So that's not healthy either. Yeah, and the career that she steered me towards was nursing. I had no thought of nursing at all. I was leaning towards obviously the creative creative majors, but also safe majors that people in my community, Indian American, they typically choose. You're either encouraged to go into engineering or computer science or medicine. Mm-hmm. That's what I was leaning towards. So nursing, the only reason she chose nursing for me is because she wanted me out of school faster to support her. Right, yeah, shorter career a, path. Yeah, instead of medical school and yeah. That's a lot more money too, isn't it? It's very expensive to go through med school to become a doctor and everything else. Yeah, it is. Who's going to pay that? That's a huge expense. You don't want to walk out of there with hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans at the end of however many years it takes. Yes. So I chose nursing. Money, at least for the undergrad, wasn't going to be a big factor because my father was paying for it. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't an issue. Oh, yes. I'll get to... The month with the college fees and and all that I had to do while I was under her influence, mm-hmm. under her thumb, really. It sounds under like under her thumb and under right under her thumb. Yeah, absolutely. Thankfully, for two years after the divorce, I was allowed to go to a private college which had like a pre-nursing track and a partnership with a nursing college, which would allow me to do two years of prerequisites at this college and then finish my nursing course in the last two years at this nursing college. I went to Mills. It's a private all-women's college in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, that allowed me a little taste of freedom. So while my my mother and my brother were living in Colorado Springs, I was for two years by myself. Then in 2007, shortly after my brother moved with my mother, he spent a few months in high school over there, but he reached a point where he couldn't take it anymore. I guess he was the only child there, and I can only imagine what she was you know, doing to him. Mm-hmm. Very and overbearing, he, for sure. Because you'd yeah. gone now. You were off at college. You escaped. So he's now yeah. the only one stuck at home with mom. 
Yes. He reached a point where he wanted to move back to California and live with my dad, which he did. The agreement, though, was to wait until after he finished the school year. But things got so bad between them, they were both fighting each other. They both pulled weapons on, well, like knives or pencils on each other, something sharp. I think it must have spooked my mother. She let him go early in wow. the middle of a school year. That's pretty extreme. When yeah. you have to escape by pulling a weapon on your own mother, that's pretty bad. Well, she did the same. And she was reciprocating, it sounds like. Yeah, so she's doing the same thing. Wow. Very dysfunctional environment. Yes. And, well, a few months after he left, she started pressuring me to move and move to Colorado Springs. To she wanted move back with her? She wanted me closer, uh, easier to control. Man, that is unbelievable. Yeah. And so while I was there, got a little taste of freedom, I actually somehow, by chance, ran into a, an activist group that was supporting ex-cult members from the Church of Scientology. I did that briefly in 2008. There was an uproar over Church of Scientology taking down one of, taking down what they said was a copyrighted video from YouTube for spurious reasons. They said it was a copyright claim, but really it was because they looked bad. This was a video with Tom Cruise looking like an entire, like a crazy person. Oh yes, on Oprah Winfrey. Not that one. That was, <laughs> There's was been many. <laughs> it was an internal Scientology video showing him with speaking all sorts of cult gibberish and oh, right. like a crazy person. So it was embarrassing. The Church of Scientology, they wanted it taken down. They did. That was my first taste of, of activism. And I got involved with them. Of course, I had to end it when I moved to Colorado Springs. And it wasn't until a couple of months after I moved back that she found out about it. And she was mad. I don't know why. Mm. I, I didn't know why at the time. Now I kind of suspect that she may, maybe deep down she knew that there were similarities between Church of Scientology and other cults, including Seventh-day Adventist denomination, mm -hmm. who many people call them a cult. Yeah, it is, it's been known as a cult or certainly has cult-like elements to it. Yes. So she was not happy about you getting involved in this ex-cult sort of movement then. She wasn't. Then there was also an awkward factor where she found a journal I was keeping where I voiced how I really felt about her and how I felt like she was using me and wanted me to move back because she wanted me to be the cash cow, so to speak. And she, I was right. When I moved back to Colorado, she wanted me to claim room and board and make me like fudge a tuition bill to send to my dad so that she could, she called it compensation. When I'd asked him up front if he could do that, of course, he refused. Mm -hmm. I would probably do the same. Yeah, it's reasonable. Yeah. That's an unbelievable story. So what happened then? You, you, you're back in Colorado underneath your mom's thumb again. Mm -hmm. She finds out about my activism. And, and the journal. And the journal. And she actually wanted to kick me out. She said that, you know, I'd end up homeless on the streets. And she, I, this is hard for me to repeat. She said I'd end up on the streets you know, that I'd, that I'd be raped in downtown Colorado and that I deserve it. Wow. Your own mother said that to you. Yeah. Yeah. And that is shocking. But I think uh, cooler heads prevailed and she saw that I could be used in other ways. It would be more beneficial for me to, you know, stay with her. Sure. Because if she had followed through and kicking me out, I would have probably ended up going back to California, asking my dad for help to get me back there, and then starting from scratch. And she would have lost her control of you and as well as the money pipeline. Yes, yes. So I was very conflicted about what she wanted me to do, fudging tuition bills to claim room and board, in addition to the usual tuition and fees for courses. Mm -hmm. But I, I did it. I, I did fight back at first, but I, I did basically tell her that she was using me as a weapon against my dad, and she got mad at me for that. Mm -hmm. And I even I also remember telling her that you know this goes against the Ten Commandments, fifth with your you know thou shall not steal. But she said she didn't care. This is she saw it as her money. And looking back, I also think she thought of nothing of stealing from a non-Christian, a heathen. Yeah, it's fair game for him because he wasn't a believer. Exactly. Yes. So um, in, in the end, did you end up getting out of that situation as well as, because I'm assuming she's still much active in the Seventh-day Adventist church at this time. Did you go back to the SDA church when you moved back to Colorado? We did try and, you know, make a home in the local Seventh-day Adventist church. Mm -hmm. 
there were two of them actually. One of them was an African American based church, and one of them was, you know, regular, multiracial, but mostly white, to be honest. Mm -hmm. We went to the one all black church. That was, I actually liked that one. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever been to an African American church. Yeah, I have. So you kind of know the atmosphere there. Yeah, very uh, different than your typical white bread church. That's for a lot more energy. A <laughs> lot more energy. They didn't sing the typical hymns. It was yeah. their praise gospel. service was gospel music. Yeah. You can imagine gospel it. Gospel choirs and all that, yeah. It, yep, that's right. I, I liked it, but my mom didn't want to go back. Unfortunately, she was also racist, so that's yeah, why. That wouldn't help in an African-American church, I wouldn't think. Yeah, so we did attend the other Seventh-day Adventist church for some time. But eventually, my mother drifted away from it. She became more extreme. She first chanced upon this offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist church called World's Last Chance, which believes that even the Seventh-day Adventist church are heretical and that Ellen White is a false prophet. And they have their own way of determining when the true Sabbath is. It's not just uh, carte blanche Saturdays only. They say it depends on the lunar calendar. I've never and, heard that one. Yeah. So she's getting more off. fundamentalist, if you will, more extreme in her yes. beliefs. Yes. <laughs> wow. How did that affect you then? What, what, did, you, did she drag you along into that new extremist, more fundamentalist version of Seventh-day Advent, Adventism? Yes, she did. We stopped attending the regular Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, World's Last Chance is mostly based in Australia, so there's no locations in the U.S. or anywhere mm. else that I know of. But, you know, she began to make me watch their videos and then follow their Sabbath. For some time, she was, she even kind of uh, coerced me into like fasting from sundown to sundown, you know, with no food. Very similar to how Muslims might uh, fast for Ramadan. Mm -hmm. Of course, I, I sort of escaped. I sort of had to give the excuse that I needed to fulfill clinical requirements for nursing school. And I was also working uh, in, the in the hospital, part-time job as a unit secretary. And I said, I had to, I had those obligations. And much of that is also requiring to work on the Sabbath day, whenever it fell. It was no longer just Saturday. It was, it could be on a Tuesday. It could be on a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So I, I pushed back. And given that I was seen as her cash cow, she didn't really push that hard to force me fully into this new sect yes. that she was into. Mm -hmm. Then eventually she even moved towards like this messianic Jewish sect led by a man named Michael Rood. By then, though, I was sort of half tuned out, but I still kept my head down and did not fight back, did not talk back. And I found my outlet. I just put my nose into the grinder, worked hard in nursing school, worked hard to get a job. I just wanted to spend as much time away from her as I could. Mm -hmm. And I could always excuse it as, well, I need to do this if I'm going to be the earner. Yeah, you had a convenient excuse to escape in a sense then. Yeah, yes. So how did you end up getting out then? Because I'm curious to find out what you're doing now. I know you do a lot of work with in that sort of field, don't you? Helping people get out of religion. Is that what you're doing now? Uh, I know we'll get to that eventually, but tell us how you got out. Oh, goodness, yeah. That too is a long story. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I did graduate. I had to move to, from Colorado to North Dakota for my first nursing job. And she promised that she would only visit while I lived on my own, but she broke that promise and moved in with me right away. This time, I was the one that had an income, even a house in my name. And well, I certainly wasn't attending any church because I had the excuse of, I have to work a lot of nights and weekends. Yeah, the chef won't allow it. Yep, they won't allow it. What a shame. <laughs> and it was during that time I was becoming disillusioned with, with everything. I started to question why would any sort of, is there really any God? Why would he allow half of what I'm seeing here? Mm -hmm. A lot of, a lot of death, a lot, yeah, of suffering, a lot of suffering, a lot of suffering. And, and also a lot of malingering behavior that made me uh, disillusioned about people in general. It was not a good it was not a good time working as a working as a nurse. Mm -hmm. I did that from I tw graduated in 2012. Started working a few months after that, and I worked in the hospital f for six good years. And during that time, I was slowly getting disillusioned about this. Well, the whole Christianity system. and 
yeah. my belief system, even for a time identifying as an atheist. Mm -hmm. But it took me years to formally break away. And that coincided with my breaking away from my mother. She mm -hmm. actually, shortly after she moved in with me, she decided to actually switch to spending half the time in the U.S. and then moved back to India first to ch take care of her ailing mother, my grandmother. But eventually she wanted to, you know, live the high life in India because dollars go a lot farther. A lot than, farther. They do go a lot farther in India than in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that I would support her there. She had her own savings. She even broke um, savings accounts that she had gotten from the divorce to fund a fancy little cottage in the foothills of the Himalayas mm -hmm. and live that good life. Eventually, she, she made it clear to me that I would be doing more and more support, supporting that lifestyle. And I also, attend, I also uh, got into graduate school. I obtained a degree in health informatics. Unfortunately, she coerced me into carrying out fraud yet again with that. My dad had offered to pay for part of the tuition for graduate school, and she wanted me instead to transfer that money to her. I, I fought back against it, and I was in a rotten place then. You know, mm. I reached the point where I wanted to commit suicide, even to the point where I had a revolver and was holding it. Wow, it was that serious. Yes. Yeah, you nearly went I, through with it then. I did. That's a and very dark funny. place. And it's funny. You know, a lot of these people like, uh, well, a lot of these uh, evangelists, like, for example, Ravi Zacharias, they often use this story as a way to say, this is when Jesus appeared to me or whatever. The yeah, when you happened. hit rock bottom. Yeah, I got nothing. And yeah, no where was Jesus then? Was not there. He should have appeared. If that, that's your lowest, you know, darkest, deepest point, that's rock bottom, man. God should have appeared to you and said, hey, Maya, I'm, I'm here for you, and I'm going to pull you out of this pit. Why didn't that happen? It didn't. No. And I, I suppose in my mind, I reached a point where, where I realized only I could save myself. Mm. However, I did comply with her request until two years into graduate school, towards the end where I said, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I want you to get out. I want you to get out of my house. You're going to stay full time in India. I don't want anything to do with you. Right. You had to cut it off. I, that was in 2017, four years ago, mm -hmm. almost four years ago, actually. It was at that time, I think a light bulb went up in my, in my, in my mind. And she was you know, threatening me that I would end up in hell for crossing her and all that. And I don't know. Maybe I just reached a point where I gave myself permission to say, no, that's not real. I'm not going to go to hell for this. Mm -hmm. And that's when I, I just said, I no longer believe in any of this. Mm. And, and finally broke it off. I finally broke it off. I mean, after decades of just abuse, really, control. Man, it's a shocking story, isn't it, of your, your mother so dysfunctional controlling you, putting you under her thumb. Look at the damage it's done to you on so many levels, psychologically and in other ways, religiously. But you made that decision. So good for you. You, you stood up and said, get out. <laughs> I am done. You're gone. Yeah. And with that, I you know, gave myself permission to question everything about all of mm -hmm. Christianity. It wasn't just a matter of leaving one denomination and then seeking out another one. I was just done with it entirely. Yeah. You know, after I finally made that final break, I started reading books by people like Bart Ehrman, which helped me to see even more that what I took for granted about what I knew about the Gospels and much of the Bible really shouldn't have been taken for granted. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, to this day, I can't believe how many onion layers of deception Christianity consists of. I learn something new every day. Mm -hmm. I learn something new. And most Christians are not aware of that, or they don't want to see that, do they? It's too emotionally threatening, I think, to start reading books like by Bart Ehrman and other people that may cause them to question, because the Bible is the very foundation of their faith, really. It's the Word of God. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's without error, and on and yes. on and on. If you question those things, then God yes. himself is a liar, and the implications of that are huge. Goodness, yeah. Like, I did not know that, you know, the authors of the gospel are not 
who they were attributed to. Mm-hmm. I did not know that they came years and years after Jesus's death. Other books in the New Testament were not attributed with that are attributed to people. They're not like Revelation, for example. For years, I took it for granted that John, Jesus's disciple, was the one who wrote it when it was just some random Greek man named John. Mm-hmm. I, did not, I did not know that. I also didn't know about interpolations, like the Great Commission verses in Mark. I did not know that was an interpolation. Mm-hmm. And I, I've sort of come to the conclusion from all these years of unraveling these beliefs and deconstructing them that, you know, was Jesus's message really meant for all people? There were many verses that point to him saying, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. And yet, you know, here they are citing the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, going to all the world, going make to disciples. All world. Yeah. Yes, these verses are the ones that missionaries use to justify why they go into countries in the so-called third world. Mm-hmm. So is that what you're doing now? Tell us about what you're doing now, because I'm aware of the time. Oh, yes. Um, so now I'm with a volunteer organization called Mission Kali, which came about a concerned group of people in India in response to coerced and even forceful conversions, which have you know, affected many parts of India, many communities. And this is alarming because you know, India is a majority Hindu country, and it's been able to maintain that majority. However, rapid demographic changes have made people question how long it perhaps can survive, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. In the northeastern states of India, there has been a rapid shift in the last 50 years, even well after India became an independent country, where from less than 10% Christian to now close to 100% in some states, at least 85% Christian. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. States like Mizoram and Nagaland actually got an influx of American missionaries. They started coming during the later years of British rule, and they started to come and they you know, converted much of the population over to Christianity, many of them from the Baptist church. The state of Nagaland in India is said to have more uh, Southern Baptists outside of the state of Mississippi. The new Bible Belt. Yes, it is. And it has led to geopolitical problems in India. There are separatist movements like, it, for example, in the state of Nagaland uh, that have popped up because they feel like they are separate from the, from the rest of the country. And yes, there are religious underpinnings for that separatist mm-hmm. movement. And then in the state of Mizoram, the church is pretty much the de facto authority over there, with the ruling government over there has to kowtow to them. They're that powerful now, huh? Yeah. Just pure, pure demographics and numbers, the numbers game alone? Yes. So what's their aim? I mean, obviously, they want to Christianize the world. Missions, yeah. that's what it's all about. They're trying to evangelize. They're trying to Christianize the world. Do you see sort of a dominionist or you were talking about Christian nationalism? How do those things play a factor in the, the missions movement in, in India? I've noticed um, there's not been like a formal study per se, but mm-hmm. anecdotally, what I've seen is that a lot of the missionaries that have been streaming into India, either during British rule or, or after India gained independence, a lot of them are from the Bible Belt and seem to be influenced heavily by Christian nationalism or dominionism that is propagated in evangelical circles. The mm-hmm. majority of the missionaries that come over are uh, considered evangelical. Have you heard of the Joshua Project? Yes, I've heard of the Joshua Project. There's a couple of different ones that are named the Joshua Project. This, the one I know of is associated with Mike Ferris from the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. I don't know if it's the same one. The Joshua Generation or Generation Joshua might be a different movement. No, the Joshua Project, the first one you mentioned, if you've seen the website, it's a real treat. Uh, it's, just very, it's, it's just very mind-blowing how much they present. It's basically a data repository of the whole entire globe. They have the world population and the population that is Christian and the population they consider unreached, meaning that they haven't, the population has not heard about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they break that down, you know, on the global level, but also country level and district level in each country. You can even see like dashboards as to how, you know, progress on unreached people and mm-hmm. unreached people groups and those that have been uh, converted. So what their aim is, what, when they're saying we can identify a demographic group 
that's not heard the gospel, we can send missionaries there. It's targeted evangelism, targeted missions work. Oh, goodness, yes, yes. India alone has so many people groups. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the Joshua Project homepage, you will regularly see many people groups on their homepage that are from India alone. Mm -hmm. And if you look on the homepage for India, the country, they list the population, population of Christians, the percentage of the population that is Christian. Mm -hmm. And they also give the population that is of Christians that are evangelical. They break it down that far. So what does your organization do then? What's your aim now going forward? Our organization seeks to raise awareness of these conversion activities as well, write educational articles, make educational videos. And we also have a legal team which um, looks for violations of Indian visa law by many of these uh, missionary groups. We have filed more than 100 complaints against many missionary groups that have come into India on false pretenses. India does have a missionary visa, but it has very strict conditions for what Mm -hmm. they'll allow. They will only allow those on a missionary visa to carry out service, like teaching at a school or providing medical care. Nowhere do they allow foreign missionaries to preach. Mm -hmm. Proselytize. Nope. So they're getting around the law, basically. Yes. And many of the laws. Many, the majority of missionaries come in on a tourist visa, mm-hmm. which, of course, does not allow any sort of activity outside of being a tourist, not even business. But many missionaries come in on a tourist visa and carry out their activity. One person I talked to, Shannon Lee, I think you know her too. Yes, I know Shannon very well. She actually admitted to doing that in India and Nepal, which is right next door to India. Yes, when she was an evangelical. Yes, yes. But that's a convenient dodge to go around the law, isn't it? Yes. And more often than not, they're not caught. So much so that the organizations we file complaints against, they have come in multiple times, probably on the same visa throughout the years. Mm. And um, So repeat offenders, basically. Oh, yes. So they've been getting away with it. Right. Well, it's good to raise people's awareness. How can people find your organization? Well, um... Our website is www.missionkali.org. As for me, I am on Twitter. My Twitter username is Mayaram, M-A-Y-A-R-A-M, 0521. I can be reached there. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to get a hold of you? Yep. There's one thing I do want to say. Mm-hmm. India is a pluralistic country, and its constitution guarantees the right to practice and even the right to propagate, which is taken advantage of by missionaries who just don't realize, you know, what they're doing. Hinduism is a very accepting religion. They accept, you know, everyone has their own individual path and that everyone has the right to express their beliefs and, and what, how they understand it. But what they don't appreciate is someone imposing their beliefs. Mm-hmm. Which is and, exactly what the evangelical missionaries are doing. Yes. And now, nowadays, people are getting more concerned about the sociopolitical aspects of having evangelical missionaries come in and propagating their, their, their especially fundamentalist version of Christianity, mm-hmm. which doesn't allow for any sort of pluralism. And this goes against the Hindu ethos. A lot of them come in under the guise of wanting to impose not just their way of life, but also in a deceptive way, offering people a way out, so to speak taking advantage of social uh, problems in India, mm-hmm. much of it related to the caste system. They, they offer this religion as a way to break free from that, par- promising that they'll have equality, but in reality, um, it's more complicated than that, and they don't even get that even after conversion. Mm-hmm. They don't understand it. And there's much misconception about Hinduism based on that because of the caste system, when in reality, it can be a self-correcting religion. We call it Samyama Dharma. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate principle of, of Hinduism, of course, is ahimsa parma dharma, meaning the ultimate dharma is, is non-harm. And it's often a religion taken for granted because it's not like formally taught. There aren't like formal days of worship like the Christians will have Sunday mm-hmm. or Saturday if they're Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah. You know, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, conversion can often be seen as a form of violence, even if it's not done at a point of a literal sword or gun. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I, the way that missionaries target people, 
they'll often get them at their most vulnerable. With the Joshua Project, they've broken down each people group. They describe them and their characteristics. So missionaries study them. And not only that, they also recruit native informants. If you're familiar with cultural anthropology, perhaps you're familiar with that term? Mm-hmm. Yes. So a native informant is someone that is within the community that is being studied or spied on, so to speak. And more often than not, they're the ones providing a lot of information that missionaries can take advantage of to carry out their work. And oftentimes they have connections in the community that's being studied or targeted. Mm -hmm. And they can often pick out the families that are most in distress. And of course, they speak the language, so they're able, able to relate to them better and make the message of foreign missionaries more palatable, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So they've got a, a connection or an in because people speak the language and they, they're of that culture already. That's correct. One more thing I'd like to add. Nowadays, people are starting to get concerned about conversion because in a way, it's a form of cultural genocide. It is leading to, it's leading to the loss of, a potential loss of knowledge systems and mm-hmm. cultures, traditions, and ways of life that have lasted for generations. Let me give you another example of this, which is happening in real time. In the state of the southern state of Andhra Pradesh, there has been a rapid rate of conversion. Officially, it's listed as 1% Christian, but in reality, I've been told, even by Christians, that the population is 25%, and it has led to unrest in communities as well as the destruction of temples in real life mimicking what happened during ancient times in Rome and mm-hmm. much of the Roman world, Greek temples being destroyed. Think Catherine Nixie's darkening age. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard to believe, but it really is happening. And our website, missionkali.org, has multiple examples of this. Mm-hmm. And I just ask that your viewers, many of whom have come out, like me, and have deconstructed their previous belief system, to think of that larger picture of why evangelical Christianity particularly can be toxic globally, not just in your own personal life or the United States, but globally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've just finished reading Jeff Charlotte's book, Sea Street, and he talks about what dominionism has done in places like Uganda and Africa. Yes. So yeah, I was going to bring that up. It's a very similar sort of story. Their anti-homosexuality bill they push that sort of agenda around the world. They view other countries kind of as a laboratory for what they can do where they can't get away with it in America. They can get away with it in places like India or Africa and the people there. They don't know the distinctions between all the different denominations here in America. So they can pass themselves off as, e- as mainstream evangelicals, although they could be fundamentalists and everything else. People, the, they don't know the differences. So they just buy their message as if, Hey, these are just American missionaries. I'm glad you're doing this work. It's definitely something that needs to be done. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Clint.